Uh, tonight we continue with our class on the Hall of Faith, looking at different individuals who exemplify what it means to trust in God. And if you remember, at the very beginning of this class, I let you vote on who we would study and who we wouldn't. Well, I lied, okay? Um, no, I didn't lie. We're actually going to extend this out a few extra weeks, if that's cool with everybody, um, into December, just to kind of finish up the year before we change into a new class. So we're going to add a few other people we've skipped. Tonight, uh, we look at David. David is somebody who is probably the most popular, most known person in this chapter. You can argue Abraham, but I think David is more known than, than many of the people we've studied. His life also is longer in terms of what is recorded about his life than many or most of the people we've studied. So that can be kind of a, a, a chore in a way to try to cover all of that in one class, and we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, what, what I thought we would do is we would take, I just wanted to pick one moment in David's life and maybe study that more than looking at his entirety of his life because there's just so much scripture that we could look at. So uh, we're going to look at a moment in David's life before we get there and we talk about David. This is that same verse we've looked at uh, the last few weeks where at the end the Hebrew writer or the preacher is saying, hey, all of these truths I've been telling you about faith there's so many other people that represent this too, and I don't even have the time to share with you their stories. Stories like, and he goes in to say, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. David's included there, and he, he mentions some of the things they did. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. Uh, they stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Uh, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. All these great stories they did that we don't even have the time to look at. We're going to look at David's tonight. If you're wondering why I'm looking up this direction, by the way, there's a TV there now um, that I can read off of. So if you're thinking I'm like talking to God tonight, I, I'm not. Uh, there's, there's just a TV up there now. I really appreciate Hal doing that. Um, so, uh, But we're going to look at David tonight, and I thought we would go back to maybe... One of his most popular stories, and that is in 1 Samuel 17, and if you want to open up your Bible to 1 Samuel 17, uh, we're going to look at David and Goliath tonight. David and Goliath is one of those stories that we teach to children in their young Bible classes, this big story, this big battle, and I think sometimes, if, if we're not careful, we, we don't realize just how real and relatable these stories are to us as adults to living with everyday faith, whether that's Noah and the ark or David and Goliath. These stories have great meaning for us. And they're not just fanciful stories. They're real events that happened uh, that have application for you and I. And I want to look tonight at David and Goliath. And we're kind of going to go through this story and bit by bit stop and have a few messages for you and I. There are these themes we've studied so far. If you haven't noticed, like every single person we've studied uh, they they did something. We talked about that last week. Remember wheelchair Larry? Or sorry, lawn chair Larry? <laughs> wheelchair Larry. No. There might be someone else in life named wheelchair Larry. Uh, no, but lawn chair Larry, the guy who decided to put 43 weather balloons to his chair and go floating. And when they asked him why, he said, man can't sit in his backyard all day. He has to do something. That's faith. Doing something uh, based off your belief in God. And so uh, we've seen every person we've studied really did something. Uh, we've seen that they all exemplify this idea of it's impossible to please God without faith. They all believe he exists. They all believe that God would reward them uh, if they sought him. And, and we see that from uh, Hebrews chapter 
11 verses 1 through 6, those points. And so instead of just giving you the basic points tonight, I wanted to pull out some more specific things that I thought applied to us. But if you're unfamiliar with David, to give you the situation leading into 1 Samuel 17, Saul was king of Israel, but Saul has been rejected. Um, God is going to now go in another direction with choosing another king um, because of Saul's uh, behavior and attitude towards him and some of the things that he has done. And so God went to uh, the father of David's house and went through all the sons, oldest, down looking for a king, and he ends up choosing the youngest, the shepherd boy, and David. He was ruddy and handsome in appearance, 1 Samuel 16, verse 10 through 13 would say. He wouldn't be the person maybe you would pick as king just based off looks alone at this moment. Yet that's who God picks, and so he has Samuel anoint him. Um, David uh, had plenty of older brothers, yet God picked him. And when we get to 1 Samuel 17, we aren't exactly sure of how old David is uh, for an approximate age. But here's what we do know. Um, According to Numbers chapter 1 and verse 3, when Israel went to fight, they had the men 20 years and up be a part of the battle. And so we assume that David is not 20 years old or older because he's not involved in the camp of Israel. He goes back and forth, as we'll see, as, a, as kind of like a shepherd boy and to check on them and come back to his father's instructions. But we would assume he is not 20. Also, he has, I think, three or four brothers that aren't there in the war either. So he's probably a teenager, is the idea. Um, so he's maybe not an 8-year-old, but he's not 25 or 26, but... No, no way to be sure completely, but I would say he's probably a teenager. And let's set the scene. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 1 through 3. It says, The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So as we just pause for a second, you have the Philistines versus the Israelites. The Philistines we've looked at a little bit already in this class. There were a few judges we've looked at that had dealings with them. One of Israel's enemies for many years, they had, I guess, kind of built back up and they were here to fight the Israelites. And this is back in the time and day and age where people just lined up to fight each other to the death, which is really weird to think about now, that people just lined up in two lines and said, let's do this thing. Um, but that's what they did. So they line up, and this is what uh, this is where this happened, supposedly. Um, you go to the Valley of Elah today, you kind of find these two elevated areas, and then there's, see that kind of flat area in the middle? The idea would be one was on each side, and that they would come out and they would battle there, or the champion, as we'll see, it comes out and battle. So if you always wanted to know what this looks like, that's the idea. Two little elevated areas, kind of a flat middle, and they would be camped on either side. So when we talk about these, they're shouting at each other, and they're kind of trash-talking each other, and they're God. This is maybe how far away they are from each other. You know, that they could hear each other the whole time. Maybe they're camped out for the period of 40 days or so. But that's what that would have looked like. Um, And so you have on both sides, you have Israel, you have the Philistines. That is the scene. And then look at verse 4 with me. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was worn with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. 
and his shield bearer went before him. Uh, if we just pause for a second, when you think about Goliath, what's the one thing you remember the most about Goliath? Yeah, you think about his his size, right? Um, he's six cubits and a span tall. Okay, now a cubit is the length of your elbow to like the top of your middle finger. So that's, uh, they usually say that's about 18 inches. Okay, so six cubits in a span. Um, now they had some different cubit measurements like a royal cubit. If it's a plain cubit, he would be over nine feet tall. To give you reference, I think the tallest person to ever live that they know of or recorded in our history is eight foot 11. Uh, the tallest man on the earth. The tallest man currently living, by the way, is from Illinois. He's eight foot two, or no, he's from Turkey. He's eight foot two. Um, so there are still some giants in a way, uh, not like Goliath maybe, but uh, he's, he'd be over nine feet tall. If the cubit was a royal cubit, he would have been over 11 feet tall. The average height of a male was, of a Hebrew male was five eight. So you can imagine, it's just like, you know, we don't know how tall David would be, but imagine looking up at someone you're about to fight to the death who's three feet taller than you. And that's what we think of with Goliath. I'll tell you, though, what's more impressive than his height is his strength. So all of those descriptions of his armor, uh, his bronze helmet would be 30 pounds. His bronze coat of mail would be 150 pounds. His shear shaft, or spear shaft, excuse me, would be 15 pounds. His spear point would be about 15 pounds. Uh, he also would have a bronze javelin and leg armor. So this weight, do we have any weightlifters in here? Anyone who likes to go to the gym and, and work out a little bit? Okay, do we have anyone who uh, used to lift weights since everyone's like, nope, I'm out on that? Um, if you go to a gym, like see a, you see a bench press or a squat rack, you get the barbell. Typically a barbell weighs how much, do you know? So see, we do have some people who lift in here. Uh, so if you put two plates on each side, two 45 plates, which are typically like the biggest size plate, that you get to put on those, that's 225 pounds. And if you see someone bench pressing 225, I mean, you're like, that person's pretty strong. I know as a guy, the first time you put two plates on the side of something and you lift it, you feel pretty good. You know what I'm talking about back there. Thank you. Um, 225, you're like, hey, that guy's pretty strong. Goliath is wearing somewhere around that much weight in his armor. And what is he doing while he's wearing that weight? Well, he's standing, but what's he challenging someone to do? Okay, when you fight, do you typically fight very slow and unathletic and uncoordinated? Hopefully not. If you do, you probably don't fight. Uh, but he's going to go fight somebody. So he's going to be moving quickly. He's going to be swinging and probably moving and ducking. You get the idea. He's doing that with 200-something pounds on him. That's an impressive man. I mean, just from his physicality, his athleticism, his strength. This is a, uh, when you see that they're afraid of him, you, get, you start to get the idea why. Because this man is not only, you know, puts the fear in you in terms of his height, but his strength and his size. He, he had to be a massive man. And so that's how Goliath is introduced. Um, I jokingly say this. Um, he would have been offered by Alabama in the sixth grade to play football. That's how impressive of a man he was. Uh, they would look at him and be like, you're on scholarship. Um, so now there's some history when it comes to Goliath. If you notice, where's he from? So in Joshua, when they take the promised land and they do this conquest in Joshua 11, verse 21 through 23, it says Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim. Do you know who the Anakim are? The Star Wars. 
It's the Star Wars, yeah. That's, that's Skywalker. That is, uh, no, not Anakin. Uh, the Anakin were the giants that we read about in the Old Testament, these giant people. Uh, they're from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from the hill, hill country of Judah. And from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to the destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So, you know, a lot of these people were wiped out, but yet you have a few of these people who are known to be giants left, and some were left in Gath, which is where Goliath's from. So they're like, how did you get to be this tall and this big? Well, there's part of your idea. Um, so that's Goliath. Um, He's this huge man. Um, if you remember, uh, did I? There we go. Sorry. If you remember also history, uh, Moses sent out the 12 spies. Um, you know, he told them to go in the land of Canaan, to spy out the land. In verse 25 through 29 of Numbers 13, when they do this, how many men went out, by the way? How many spies? How many came back with a good report? Um, only two did. That was Joshua and Caleb. Um, They go to this land where these men dwell. And remember what they said in verse 30 through 33. Um, Caleb quieted the people before Moses said, let us go up at once and occupy it. After these negative reports, he says, let's go up and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy uh, it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, they're nine feet tall or so. I, this phrase is interesting. It says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. I always read that wrong growing up. Because what does it say? We seem to who? I always thought it said they look like it in the giant's eyes. But at first it's they see themselves that way. And so then the giants see them that way. I always got that wrong. But they look at these people and they're afraid. And that's why the reason ten people said, no, we're not going to take this land. These are the same. This is a guy who seems to be a descendant of these kind of people. He's the one who steps out. And so... There's some history on Goliath for you, and I want to pause real quick and make some applications. Instead of waiting till the end to do this, I thought we would go ahead and do this now. One bit of application I get from the story of David and Goliath is there are always going to be giants. I don't mean that by like nine foot people. I know there are some tall people today, but there are always going to be giants. Uh, What I mean by that is opposition or obstacles or distractions of big kinds for people of faith. There are always going to be challenges that stand in the way of the church and God's kingdom people and you and I as individuals who try to live by faith. There's going to be something in the way. Um, just think about all of Scripture. Were there not great giants of some kind uh, throughout? You know, you think about, yes, the land of Canaan and those physical giants. Yes, David deals with a physical giant here, but I would think the serpent at the beginning for Adam and Eve was pretty a pretty big obstacle. Um, Noah, when he's building the ark, besides the fact that's a great ginormous task, all the outside voices he would hear being the only faithful person, that had to be a lot to deal with and overcome. Um, For Moses, there was a Pharaoh and this great nation of people. Uh, For Jesus, he had to deal with the temptations of Satan. The church in the New Testament dealt with persecution. There's always been giants. Are there giants today? What kind of giants do you and I deal with? 
<laughs> the NBA. You said the NBA. What kind of giants do you and I deal with? You got personal stuff, right? I mean, trials, temptations, you know, those kind of things, health, all that stuff, suffering. You know, we might not be persecuted. We talked about this Sunday night the same way the early church was, but we still have tests and trials and suffering we deal with. Those can be gigantic for you and I as we try to live by faith. Are there other giants we deal with? Yeah, we're living in a society that is growing more and more to be kind of just anti-God, not very sympathetic of Christianity, as you said. That can be a giant, because what is our mission, by the way, as the church? You know, we, we're glorifying God, but we want to reach people. We're trying to reach people in a society that seems to be more of, don't talk to me, don't, you know, I don't want what you're offering, don't bring it to me. We have challenges. Um, as a church, we have challenges. There's I guess one point we should make is from the very beginning is, listen, there's always going to be giants. There's always going to be some opposition. Like, we shouldn't be startled or shocked when there is. When our personal life, there is something trying to come between us and God, or us and living by faith. There shouldn't, it shouldn't startle us when, as a church, when we're trying to glorify God to the best of our ability, or when we're trying to meet a need, or when we're trying to do something to reach people, that there's opposition or there's challenges, or there's obstacles. There's always been, and there always will be, until we're reunited with Him eternally. There's always going to be opposition. So uh, we see that there, and we it's still true today. Uh, we're never going to be able to eliminate the giants of this world, but that's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to live by faith amongst them. You know, He says, yeah, you got these challenges and these obstacles. I want you to trust while they're there. You know, it's interesting, maybe God kept giants in the promised land to keep unbelievers out. You ever thought about that when it came to the 12 spies? Maybe that he wanted to see who really believed and trusted that God could do this despite what they saw. And for you and I, maybe it might be the same. That God puts these huge challenges and obstacles and things that try and test our faith in our life to see if we will trust or not. And so there will always be giants. Any thoughts or questions or comments on that before we keep going? Okay. Um, here's another one I want you to see as we keep reading, is that people will follow the faith of the leader. I want you to notice this. Uh, Look at verse... Do we have verse 8 up there? Sorry, one sec. There we go. This is Goliath. Uh, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So he's, there's the challenge laid out. Let's go mano y mano. Let's forget all the bloodshed. Let's just do this, finish this quick. 1v1, your best, our best. Let's fight. And he also kind of throws in there some, some trash talk in a way, and he'll do more of that later. But I defy you. I defy you. He'll defy their God. Let, let's fight. And I want you to notice the response. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Uh, This would not be the first time you see this, and this would not be the last if you skip down to verse 16. 
Forty days the Philistine came forward, and he took his stand morning and evening. Now remember that picture I showed you. Are they very far away from each other? So for 40 days and nights, every morning and night, here comes Goliath, basically saying, give me someone to kill. I defy you. I don't believe in your God. I, I will destroy you. Come on, let's do this thing. And he, he trash talks, and he's, he, he's challenging them over and over again. And every single time, for 40 days and 40 nights it appears, the response is that. They are dismayed and greatly afraid. If you keep looking, here's verse 19 through 24. This is kind of where David comes from his shepherd duties. And he, he comes and it says, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep uh, with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse his father had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. You get this same response over and over again. By the way, when it comes to this whole chapter and story, what do we call this story? When we tell our kids, I want to teach you the story of what? David versus Goliath. You ever thought about whose story should this have been? Shouldn't it have been Saul? He's the king. He's the one right there. I, let me ask you this. Do you think God would have helped his people defeat Goliath if someone, if someone else would have stepped up by faith? You know, all these men are just afraid to. And I think the big difference you see from David and the rest of these men is some live in the fear and being afraid and dismayed, and David lives by faith. I don't mean by faith that he didn't recognize that Goliath was a huge man or that there was a risk or anything like that, but he had faith that God would help him. This story could easily have been Saul and Goliath, but he was unwilling to step up. He was too afraid. And so I think you can make a connection there. And there's a truth to be made that people tend to follow the faith and the example of the leader. Because who's, who's the one to show what faith looks like in this moment? It's Saul. He's king. And all the people are there. All the men are there. And they look at their king. And what's their king doing? He's cowering. He's afraid. I think there's a truth for, for you and I in that. That people will follow the faith of the leader. That applies in, in multiple ways. You know, for leaders of the church... People will mimic our attitude and faith. You know, when it comes to what we handle in, in our own personal life, they'll look at that and they'll follow that example. When it comes to how we deal with some of the giants that we just talked about, the challenges in the church, people will look to us and they'll see our attitude and our demeanor and our faith and where we put it, and they will follow that. I'll give you a few examples. You know, I hear a lot of people in the church talk about they're afraid of where are all the young people. Where are all the young people? Or how are we going to get young people? And you can have a few attitudes when it comes to that. You know, if you think, if you're a leader of the church and you think they're unreachable, if you're unwilling to try to reach them, if you're unwilling to go, if you think it's impossible or think you're going to fail doing it, you know what's probably going to happen? You're probably not going to reach them for one. But also, everyone else that follows you as a leader will probably start to have that same attitude. 
Saul's like, hey, I can't, I can't defeat Goliath. You know what the rest of the men then thought? I can't do it either. People tend to follow the example of the leader. That, that goes for the church, you know, church leaders. Um, you know, if you sit on your hands and think there's nothing we can do. You know, we talk about our world that goes away from, from God or it seems to be less God. And we go, let's just throw up our hands. No one wants to hear the truth anymore. No one out there wants to hear the message if you have that attitude, guess what? The rest of your people, will, or not your people, but you get my point. The rest of the people will have that attitude. And that will affect them, not only how they treat others or how they live by faith, but it will affect them too. And so people follow the faith of the leader. That applies to, to the leaders in the home. I know we hear that and we think elders, ministers, deacons. Listen, I think everyone in here I'm looking at, or almost everybody's a leader in their home. Like the, they'll, Your children will follow your faith in a way. You influence them. Uh, they, I know there are exceptions to the rule, uh, but typically they, they look at your faith and they will follow it to a degree. They'll be influenced by it. You know, what is our attitude? Are we living by faith? Uh, when it comes to our marriage or at work or in the home or in church, people will follow. So it's something to think about. You know, are we living by faith? What is our faith like? Especially when we deal with the challenges and giant things that come up in our life. I'll tell you, there's one more part in that that I think is very interesting. I know we don't have verse numbers up there, but that second line, how David rose early in the morning, he left the sheep with the keeper, he took his provisions, he went as Jesse had commanded him, and this part, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. Can you picture this in your head? They all line up, they're shouting, they're chanting, like the rah-rah stuff of we're going we're gonna to do this. You know, we're going to fight. How many days has it been again? 40 days. Yeah. Hey, we're the army of Israel. We're going to, we got this. And then they line up and what happens? Church, if we're not careful, we can be this way. We can come in here and sing all these things and say all these words and say, this is truth. And yeah, we, this is what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Right. And then the bell rings for class or we say that last amen or you're dismissed. And then we just go back. To whatever it is we were before. Let's go, let's go back to that tent. It was cozy. Let's go back to the camp. We gotta be careful about that. It's, re- it's real easy to shout it and to say it when we're together or make it seem like we believe this, but what do we do after the fact? Does anyone act, do we go fight? Do we go to the battlefield? I think that's important too, but just from a, a big perspective, people follow the faith of the leader. Any thoughts or questions or comments on that before we keep going? Shoulders above everybody else, so he was the big guy yeah. among the Israelites, and then facing Goliath, he was the grasshopper. Yeah, when you're fighting a really big guy, and your big guy doesn't want to fight him, you know, it's like I don't think I'm gonna go be a part of that. Um, so, but yeah, I, those are just some points I think we we could take away from that. Um, if we keep looking, I think we see this truth too: our faith is only as strong as the person we put it in. If I was to ask you, who had faith in this battle, who would you say? Most of you would say David, right? Don't they both have faith, Goliath and David? They just put their faith in different things. I don't know if you ever thought of it this way. They both have faith, but they they put their faith in different things. You can see by how David responds to all this. So David has heard this cry. Uh, he's heard, you know, Goliath's taunting, his shouting, his challenge. 
All the men of Israel, verse 24, were afraid, or when they saw the man, they fled from him and were much afraid. By the way, that's just kind of funny to me. They're shouting, they're chanting, and then they see him and they flee. I don't know how fast those men were running, but they were moving. Um, it says, surely he has come up, or have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. He asked for that same answer of what will be done for the guy who kills him. But notice some of his language. Hey, what will he do for the man who kills the Philistine? What will, you know, for the man who takes away this reproach from, from Israel, for this circumcised one who defies the armies of the living God? Um, you keep reading. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard this when he spoke to the men. His anger was kindled against David. Um, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's angry he's there. He thinks you just want to see this, you just want to watch this. He also thinks your words are kind of empty. You're not really going to fight the guy. You don't mean it. And David says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And it says, he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. If you heard a guy in a camp of a lot of people who are too afraid to fight Goliath say, Hey, uh, what happens if you kill Goliath? Hey, what happens if you kill Goliath? You know what you start to think? Maybe he wants to try to kill Goliath. Um, and so this kind of spreads. He keeps asking this question in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. Uh, but David said to Saul, and this is, this is important, this is what we're talking about. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and he, and he uh, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Uh, as you look there, who does David have his faith in? Does he want to go fight because David thinks he's really good at it? Because he's, he's got the ability, because he's a great warrior? Yes, he says, I've, I've took care of a, a lion or a bear, and, but he's not saying... Because I've done that, I'm the guy for this. He's more thinking about, he's defied the armies of the living God. Okay, now, so David said, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. It's not him, it's, it's the Lord. That's who he puts his faith in. Now compare that to, um, I'll skip this part for time's sake. Sorry about that. You know, he uses five stones and a sling. He tries on the armor. He's like, I'm not really used to this. So he grabs the stones and the sling. He approaches the Philistine. Now compare his faith to, to uh, Goliath's face. faith. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, 
am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? What's he telling David there? You're, you're what to me? You're like a toy. You're nothing. I mean, you're just, you're just something I would just play with. I mean, you're not a threat to me at all. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the, to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. You're a toy to me. You're nothing. You're not a threat. I will take you. I'll kill you. And I'll feed some animals with you. Now, who is his faith in? I think you could say two people. It might be his gods. He cursed them by his gods. But I think the, the likely one is he has a lot of faith in himself. I'm nine feet something tall. I'm strong. I'm a man of war since I was young. I have all this ability. See, they both have faith, but they have their faith in different people. And as we know, um, there is, there's a winner and a loser in this battle. And the winner is the one who put his faith in God. The winner is the one who put his faith in the Lord. That's been something we've looked at. We've looked at throughout this chapter. Every single person that we've talked about in Hebrews 11, it wasn't about the size or the great strength of their faith. It really was about the person they put their faith in. It was all in the person who has the power, who has the ability. Mike. We did fly. Uh, you know, I, I, I killed a lion, I killed a bear, you know, and, and the Lord delivered me from the hand of the lion, the paw of the lion, the bear. The point there is that uh, God developed that young boy's faith through facing, you know, a bear. It's yeah. Not something that you would normally. A bear's no small challenge, I would imagine. Yeah. And lions, uh, even faster and, you know, so and so forth. My, my point is that he didn't go from zero to Goliath. Yeah. He, 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 you know, he had some training in faith in facing larger enemies, yeah. so to speak. And so for him, it seems this was just like another step. You know, I, I did it with those guys, Goliath. The, the Lord helped me. Uh, I can do it with this guy. And I think in our lives, it works like that as well. God yeah. doesn't give us the giant out of the box, you know, baby steps, and, you know, if we're faithful doing the small thing, you know, faithful in small things, faithful in big things. Yeah, like, like the giants get bigger, but so does the faith as you live by faith. I would imagine a bear would seem pretty giant to me if I was 12 or 50. Uh, I'd be scared, but like, that's the idea, right? He, he's had some training in this. He's lived, he's stepped out by faith. He's seen how God's worked. And he, he's, he's still doing that. But I think our faith is only as strong as the person we put it in. Um, if we put our faith in ourselves, that's a, that faith won't do anything for you because you're not strong enough. You're not powerful enough. You can put your faith in something of this world or, or you know, some other God. But there's only one person you really can put your faith in that is strong enough to, to bring it to its designed end. And that's the Lord. Yeah.
Yeah, people put their faith in a lot of different places today, people. But there's only one person we can put our faith in that will really be effective. If our faith is in ourselves to just kind of live good enough to enjoy heaven, that's not where our faith should be. It should be to put it in the one person who can actually take our sins away. If we just, we put our faith in that, if we just try to do this well enough, we should squeak by better than most people. No, our faith has got to be in God. Um, if we think, I'm, I have the, like, I'll give you an example. If I think, I might have the ability to, to preach at a church just based off my talent or ability or strength. God's going to be like, ha, ha, ha. He'll laugh in my face. Uh, he'll show me otherwise. Because if your faith isn't in God, it, he'll, he'll show that to you. And it won't be as effective and you're not really able to do what he wants you to do. Like, who is your faith in? Because it's only as strong and effective as the person it's in. And so you see that point here. Uh, he had his faith in himself and it didn't work out for Goliath. David had it in uh, the God and the God of everything, and that helped him tremendously. Now let's get to this last one. I think this is the big takeaway from the whole story. Faith sees God as the giant. If you look at this battle, we look at it and we say the biggest person in the valley was Goliath, but was he really? He was not the biggest person there. Uh, he was not the greatest uh, being in, in that moment. Uh, if you look at this in verse 45, David said back, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of, Im- of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Would you say David's a confident fellow? Pretty articulate, too. Pretty articulate too. He, had, he had that speech prepared all night, the night before. He was like, what am I going to say to that guy? No, I'm kidding. Uh, but no, he's confident. You can see where he puts his faith or who he puts his faith in. But you sit there and go, how can a man of that size walk out to Goliath and say these things? Like, how can he believe all that? And it's because, well, he believed God was much bigger and greater and more powerful than Goliath. He did not see Goliath as the, as the one who was really the giant in this moment. If there's one truth in Scripture that, um, that proves, uh, that's proven over and over again more than anything else, it's probably that there's nothing bigger than our God. There's, there's no one like him. You know, he's creator. He spoke the earth into existence with his voice. Uh, he shut the mouth of lions. He's flooded the earth. He's parted seas. He sent fire from heaven. He's crumbled nations and governments when it pleased him. I mean, he just moves them like chess pieces on a board if it fits him. Uh, he's defeated death, the greatest problem of sin and death. Uh, he's bigger than Goliath. He's greater. And David has that viewpoint as he's uh, doing this. I, I think it's foolish to say just ignore Goliath, act like he's not real, don't think about it. That's not realistic. David saw who he was fighting, um, but David wasn't fooling. David didn't ignore the fact that God was much bigger than Goliath. And that was the key to this whole thing. He had faith that God was able, God was more powerful, God was greater. I think when we face our giants, we get really distracted. Um, you know, our mind wanders from, the greatness and bigness of God to 
whatever's in front of us. You ever feel that way? You ever think sometimes you lose sight of who's really in control and who's really in power? I, I remember when I studied this a few years ago, and it was 2020 and 2021, and I talked about things that distract us. I know he's opposition, but in a way, Goliath is a distraction. He diverts all the people's attention away from God and puts it on his ability. And in that year when I was studying this at the time, uh, we had COVID, we had an election year, and those are never, you know, controversial. And then you had uh, an impeachment trial, and then you had murder hornets. I don't know if you remember that, that thing. There were murder hornets. There was a threat for like a good week. Anybody? Okay, no. Look that up later. Murder hornets. You're, you're alive, so it, oh, I guess it's okay. Um, World War III was impending with North Korea. Um, like, fast forward today. If you just clicked on your news and you flipped through it, you think you'd get afraid at all? Now, we'd say no if we have faith in God, but sometimes we get so lost by what we see or so afraid by what we see or distracted, we lose sight of God. We lose sight of his greatness and his power and his ability and how he's in control. And I think we can do that as individuals and we can do that as a church. We can get so distracted. We can get so overwhelmed by what we're seeing in the moment or this challenge or this obstacle. And we forget, we forget God. And it would do us good if we would spend more time focusing on the power and the greatness of God. Any thoughts or questions about that as we've been talking about it? Yeah. Uh, who is that? Oh, hey. It's good to see you. Sorry. It's interesting to know that after, after he killed Goliath, the people stood up with him and chased the Philistines all the way back to Ekron, all the way back to Gath, all the way back to where the giants were to let them know, we have killed your giant, your descendant, whoever. Don't come here. We have a God on our side. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because do you recognize that kind of attitude before David fights him? No, so that kind of goes with the following the faith of the leader. I guess it also helps when the man's head's cut off. That might push you to go too. But yeah, they, they go. But it's interesting because if they know their history, they took a land full of giants. And here they're scared to fight one. And it's because they've forgotten who God is or they have neglected who God is. And they're, they're looking at what they see over the God who's over them. And so, but that's a good point. They chase him and they chase him far. Which, by the way, what happened to the agreement of whoever kills the other will serve you? I guess that sounded good until their guy lost. Um, what's that phrase? Like, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You ever heard that? Yeah. Philistines. There you go. They originated that. Um, so, Marty, you had your hand up. Yeah. I, I'm sure that David never could have foreseen that when he fought the lion and the bear... It was in preparation for Goliath. But that's how it worked out. And he probably didn't get up that morning saying, man, I hope I have to fight a lion today. Yeah. And so when I, when I think about that, I think, whatever happens to me today, is that about what's happening today? Is it just happenstance? Or is this something that God has either put in my path or allowed to be in my path because something else is coming down the road? Yeah. And I've talked... Talk to people about this who've studied with people who said they didn't want to obey the gospel. And they said, well, I just wasted my time. But no. Studying with one person helps you learn skills for the next person. And when you study with three or four or five, you've really got some skills built up. So you feel more confident about number six. And I think that's, that's just the way God works all the time with us. Just like a sports coach. Coach doesn't say, here's a box of donuts and a gallon of milk. Let's watch some movies. 
He says run last. Whatever you don't like, that's what he's going to make you do. Yeah. He's, going to, he's going to put you through the paces so you're prepared when the time comes and you have to face the Goliath that you're talking about. Yeah, he, he, he's working them or building them up in a way, little by little. It's not zero to a hundred right away. It's not, it's these, and by the way, those, you know, the lion or the bear, that would be a, a giant when you face it. I think that's, I don't know if you've ever been there too, where like, you ever look back 30 years on some of the things you faced and go, that seems so huge to me at the time. I don't know if it would seem that huge to me today because maybe that's the case. That's not always true, but maybe that's part of it. We have a few, hold on, Johnny. I know you had your hand raised first. A lot, of, a lot has to do with when they witnessed, when the Israelites witnessed uh, the faith David had and his success in trusting God. Yeah. They, they knew with God's help they could chase them down. Yeah. A, a good example, uh, some of you guys that are old enough remember for years, they tried to break the four-minute mile. Anybody remember that? Yeah. I mean, runners everywhere, all over the world. Where, you know, and every year they tried, and they tried for years. And finally, one guy—I can't remember his name, unfortunately. Roger Bannister. Is he from Kansas? <laughs> anyway, one guy does it. The next year, I think. Like 16 or 17 guys ran them because they knew they could. That, that's a great point. And I, and I think if you apply that to us, it's like this goes for leaders or all of us as individuals. It's like, man, I, I can never beat that temptation or that sin. And then one person starts trying by faith, and they do it. And then you kind of look at them and go, hey, they did it. Maybe I, maybe I could do that. Or... I love that. This happens with our young men. I don't know if you ever noticed this. When they lead a service, none of them want to do it until one guy does. And then the rest are semi-jealous. And they're also like, but you know, if he did that, I can do that. It's the same thing. I, that's, a great, that's a great point there and then, then here. Yeah. One other point is that not every day you face a Goliath. It's not every Most day. Most of the time, it's, it's pretty flat. There are no giants around. You know, you're cruising along. But if you're not uh, feeding your faith and working your faith and, and so on and so forth, you know, in the quiet times, you won't be ready to, to face the giant. Yeah. Uh, Wednesday night church, uh, I'm preaching now, but, you know, when, Wednesday night service, hey, we get together, we, we hear a nice Bible class, that's fine. But that, that's part of staying sharp and, and staying spiritually focused and so on and so forth so that we're ready to face the giant when the time comes. You know, yeah. if something happens uh, next week, uh, you think back to tonight and, and, and the, you know, the concrete lessons and ideas that everyone shared tonight, that may be the thing that, that gets you through, you know. But it, it, won't, it, it doesn't happen if you don't put in the time is what I'm saying. No, that's, that's good. I mean, you've got to feed your faith so when the giants do come, they don't always come, but when they do, you, it helps to be ready to be prepared. We'll go to you, and then we'll... Well, I'm kind of stealing this from somebody else, or in case anybody else has heard this, but we, we, don't, all, we don't all get there the, the same way. So, you know, Paul, it took Paul like three times, or three different journeys to, to, get, to get there in, in the same way. Jonah only took one journey to get there. You know, it took him, you know, the journey with the fish, and then he got the point, you know. So, you know, 
we all kind of take our own journey to get there. So sometimes we take a straight line and sometimes we take, you know, a zigzag to get there. So yeah. everybody has their own journey. That is time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all the comments. Hopefully you got something out of that. If you didn't, well, go enjoy the darkness. Have a good night.